Hello, Worcester and the world. You're listening to Public Hearing on WICN 90.5 FM, Worcester's only NPR affiliate station, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our show is about addressing community challenges in ways that center equity, justice, and joy for every person in Worcester, Massachusetts. We are back after a couple months off, and we're excited to be introducing a new series that we are going to be doing on housing. Housing has a lot of layers, many intersectional, and we're going to be speaking with folks that center equity when approaching housing issues. Some of the topics we'll be diving into include equitable solutions for housing unhoused folks, as well as addressing problematic landlords that don't take care of their buildings and sue their tenants after a roofing project causes a significant portion of the house to collapse. This is the Public Hearing Podcast. I am the first to admit that this is a critical community challenge area that I am not the most well-versed in, but I believe that may be the case for many of us. Uh, So we're bringing folks onto the show who are much more connected to these issues, and I'm looking forward to learning alongside you, our listeners, as we embark on this housing journey. As always, if you have any questions, comments, things you'd like to hear more about on the show, please reach out to our team at publichearing at actionbydesign.co or join the conversation on our recently launched Twitter account at publichearingma. I'm very excited to kick off our housing series with Domenica Perone and get ready for a rock star bio. Domenica is currently the director for the Office of Community Engagement and Volunteering at Clark University. From December 2019 through March 2022, she worked as a project manager for the Commissioner of Health and Human Services for the City of Worcester. Previous to her role in Health and Human Services, she worked as a program evaluator and program coordinator at the Latino Education Institute, LEI, at Worcester State University. She also worked as a research assistant for the Collaborative for Youth and Community Justice, CYCJ, at Clark University. She graduated in 2020 from Clark with a master's in community development and planning and an MBA. Domenica joined the Edward Street Child Services Board of Directors in November 2021. She's also a member of the board at the Maine South CDC and serves on the Leadership Council and as vice chair for the Diversity Committee of the Women's Initiative of United Way. She's also a board member of Worcester's BIPOC Artist Collaborative, El Salon, and is a member of the 2022 Leadership Worcester Cohort. Domenica was the 2021 recipient for the Central Mass Housing Alliance's Judy Brown Cahill Award, which is presented annually to recognize a direct care provider who goes above and beyond to be a positive change agent and support for families to move to healthy and stable living. As a Latina and immigrant with lived experience, Domenica has a passion for educational equity and social justice for BIPOC communities. She is committed to working with Worcester organizations, leaders, advocates, and youth toward these goals. Following a written bio that I read for guests, I always invite folks to share any additional information about themselves, their identity or social location, and any experiences they feel comfortable sharing that might give our listeners a bit more insight into them and their connection to the topics that we may explore today. So, Domenica, welcome, and thank you so much for joining us here on Public Hearing. Anything you'd like to briefly add about you? Thank you so much, Josh. I'm really excited to be here. Um, hearing all that out loud, I'm like, I think you covered most things. I just want to, you know, also share that I'm really happy to be here and share some of my thought processes around this topic. And I am representing, you know, myself today, and also taking into account that, you know, the bio that you just read are some of the experiences and, you know lessons that I'm pulling some of my opinions from and thought processes from. Um, And, you know, just hoping that can inform our awesome conversation today. 
Awesome. Well, thank you again for for being here. And I want to dive right in. Our time flies on this show. We're talking about housing. And for for folks who might be less familiar, if you were to do a quick intro into some of the challenges, complexities, considerations related to housing for say like a a sixth grade school assembly, what would what would you say? What would you bring up? How would you introduce this? Absolutely. Um, I, first of all, love that question because I do think, as you mentioned, um, when we're talking about housing, there are so many layers, there's so many nuances, there's so many perspectives, um, there are so many intersectional lived experiences that it has an effect on. Um, and so when I'm thinking about, you know, framing this in a way that is a little bit more simple for folks to understand, it's just there are layers of housing and layers of homelessness, right? And I think oftentimes what we think about is kind of what we see, right? And so I think about visible homelessness or people who are houseless and you can see them, you know, maybe on the street, on, you know, maybe you see remnants of them. It could be encampments, things like that, right? And I'm going to call that for today, um, you know, visible homelessness, right? Taking into account, though, that there is a whole other side of this conversation that might be, you know, quote unquote, invisible to us, right? There's a lot that takes place for an individual between, you know, being housed and then, you know, living in that type of situation on the street and things like that. Um, There's family homelessness that we need to think about. In Massachusetts, we have a um, a right to shelter for for children specifically, right? And so what does that mean and what does that look like? Um, there's a lot of things to consider when we talk about landlords and property ownership and things like that. And then, of course, all of these things intersect with mental health, with wraparound services, with access to health care um, and access to food and food security. So there's a lot of different layers to think about. There's, you know, our whole sheltering system. There's, um, you know, the legal aspect of what is a right, what isn't a right. There's different types of low threshold housing with wraparound services. There's single room occupancy for folks that are exiting um, this type of life and things like that. So I think there's a lot to unpack there. And I just, you know, if I was talking to a sixth grader, I would want them to keep in mind that um, I think at the root of this conversation is humanity and love and community and keeping in mind that we should not be desensitized to something that maybe we are used to seeing on a daily basis, right? These are humans. These are people's parents, uncles, daughters, fathers, mothers, all of those things. And those things are not less true because of, you know, what we are seeing when we're walking down the street, right? So just kind of keeping some of those things in mind as we, you know, delve into a deeper conversation about this. And I appreciate how you really point to the piece that I think most people who might not be or might not feel as affected by some of these issues talk about these issues, right? Like the visible houselessness piece to this, right? Mm -hmm. And I have been in Worcester for over a decade now, and I have been part of nonprofits and organizations that have surveyed people either through like online surveys or actually talk to people on the street. And it's shocking the some of the responses that you get from folks when you're asking like, what are the greatest challenges in Worcester, right? Oh, absolutely. And I feel like there is 
everyone has an opinion about it, right? Whether you are a family that is walking your child to school and you're walking down the street and unfortunately maybe you have an opinion about this because of what you see on the ground. Maybe it's needles, right? Or there's, you know, one time I took an Uber home and the Uber driver had something to say about, you know, all these homeless people on the streets, whatever type of language they used. And so I think there are so many people who have an opinion about it and do feel desensitized. And when I think about our youth and our children, just kind of making sure that we are centering that humanity because we should not, you know, live our day-to-day life intentionally ignoring somebody who may be panhandling, right? Like these are humans. And I think by continuing to ignore ignore them and desensitize ourselves to them, we are only perpetuating this trauma that is experienced by an entire community of folks. Absolutely. And, and, you know, Action by Design as a, as a organization, we do, we do the show to draw attention to specifically issues surrounding equity, justice, and mm-hmm. like the pursuit of like joyful community um, and what that really looks like. And when we talk about these issues centering like dignity and humanity, I think is so critical because it's often removed from how people make decisions as well, right? They're like, um, you know, I just don't want to see this in my downtown. So how do we remove that piece and not address the challenges that surround it that are systemically driven? And and that's the other piece that I think is so critical is like we are looking at failing systems and structures when we see people in these types of situations, right? When we're not addressing the opioid crisis or um, looking at substance use disorder as a medical condition, like we would with any other disease or, or disorder, right? We create pathways for folks to get support. And we have failed so many people in so many ways from accessing support, right? So how do we look at, you know, those are like kind of the intersectional elements to this um, as well. And, you know, I think the the language that we use is also really critical. And, you know, when I talk about like unhoused folks and unhoused like populations of people, um, it brings me back to this conversation that I had with someone around, um, you know, that there are folks who have found some version of home for them and some version of safety. And just because some folks might look at that as not um, qualified to be considered a home or a place of shelter or safety, um, that like how the damaging that can be as well. Like when we're talking about removing encampments and tents and like where people are staying. Um, and again, this is not my specialty space, so I'm a little rambling now, but I'm wondering kind of your thoughts around that and some of the questions that come forward for you as we're talking about centering like dignity and, and humanity in how we approach these issues. Absolutely. Um, I would agree with everything that you just said, and it just makes me think more specifically about like the stigma associated with all of these things that are either drivers of, you know, this experience or outcomes of it. And so the stigma around not being able to have a conversation with, you know, people in our community about, you know, what is the best thing to do for this this population, this community as a whole, right? Like this experience of moving encampments from place to place or, you know, some folks who may want to 
loudly advocate for the displacement of homeless people because they are they are trying to defend their own community, their own neighborhood. They don't want their neighborhood to look a certain way, have certain folks there. But I think bringing it back to like this larger sense of community and understanding that the displacement of a person or an encampment is not going to sustain a larger solution for our city. If there's one thing that we learned coming out of the pandemic is that we cannot operate in a silo. We cannot operate as if this is, you know, this not in my backyard mentality that is very deadly to those who are the least privileged, right? Those experiencing the most at-risk situations in their day-to-day life are the ones who have to experience the consequences that may be deadly that stem from this not in my backyard mentality. And to me, not in my backyard mentality is the exact antithesis of community building, right? It means that you do not want to have, um, you know, you might agree with healthcare for the homeless, but you don't want to have it in your neighborhood. Or you might agree that there should be shelters, but not in your neighborhood. Or encampments, sure, as long as I don't have to see them and they're over by the Walmart, right? So that mentality I'm saying is deadly because oftentimes this could be the reason that certain services and certain, um, you know, shelters and things like that, they end up in certain places throughout the city to begin with. And I am, you know, I am sympathetic to people in communities that are offer, often experience the most, I don't want to say, you know, they have the most services already in their neighborhood. And oftentimes these are black and brown communities. These are often, you know, the families that we are also trying to think about, right? We we understand that black and brown folks and immigrant folks have, um, you know, shorter lifespans. Even in Worcester, we know that there is a shorter lifespan between two different parts of Worcester, between Maine South and, you know, certain at the west side of Worcester, right, for instance. And so keeping in mind that, Yes, everyone should have access to a happy, healthy life in a safe neighborhood. And also, we need to do what is best for our larger community. And that includes every person who's experiencing uh, homelessness or every person who is houseless right now. I think that the biggest detriment to this not in my backyard mentality is actually that people who are experiencing homelessness are not considered part of your community, right? Even though I see this person, you know, maybe on the corner of my sidewalk or on the way to the highway from my house, I see the exact same person every day. So why wouldn't that person be considered part of my community? Why am I not also trying to do right by them, right? And I think that's where it comes back to this conversation about stigma and the lack of understanding around harm reduction too, which I'll talk about in a minute. Mm. Um, But this stigma around... um, you know, what is not seen as acceptable or this person who may be the person I see on my way to work that is panhandling next to the highway, that person has made a lot of wrong decisions in their life that has led them to this situation, I think is often the stigma around that, right? We can't talk about the trauma that person has experienced. We can't talk about the trauma that they live in just by, you know, existing day to day. However, if we bring it back to that humanizing, that dignity piece, I should make eye contact with that person. That person is my neighbor just as much as anybody who owns property, right? Mm. And so owning property is not, 
you know, the only thing that makes us a community. I mean, we know in Worcester, most people rent their houses, right? Yeah, so I when was going to say, I'm, I'm a renter, yeah. and I've been here for 11 years now um, or more. And the the issues that, you know, and, and there's also like the lens of who is most able to show up and participate in the way in which we've structured our systems to allow for that participation, which always really frustrates me, right? Because it's people with a certain level of like time privilege or like this like forced harm need to show up in some of these spaces. And so I think like that's really important for folks to think about as well as like if you are a homeowner, think about the renter community, think about folks who are unhoused, think about what those experiences, you know, look like for folks. Exactly. And just how you kind of previously mentioned, I myself am also um I rent. I have an excellent relationship with my landlords, but in my life previously, I've definitely had situations where I've had slumlords, right? And I've had situations where other neighbors in my building may be in and out a lot more because of the lack of stability that that particular proper property owner created for our immediate environment, right? And so also I think that is part of the humanizing piece that that person that I'm passing on the way to work panhandling we're not too too far removed in terms of our degrees, right? Like there, there are many ways that people can end up in different types of situation and trauma is present in all of them, right? And we all experience trauma. However, you know, it's, it's important to keep in mind that we do have that commonality that is a human being. And so how do we, you know, how can we check our own stigma? And, you know, I also want to talk about harm reduction, like harm reduction, that mindset of, you know, there is not one right way for every single person to live. Right. And especially when we're talking about this community. And I'm again, I'm talking about some of the folks that we say that we that may be living in encampments and maybe are staying at the shelter at 25 Queen Street. Right. Like our our most vulnerable. Right. And at the end of the day, we can't, these are individuals with their own autonomy, right? Um, These are people who maybe own very little property um, and yet their autonomy is theirs. And so for us to try to compromise that autonomy because we think that they should, you know, live a sober lifestyle a certain way or they should exit homelessness a certain way or receive treatment a certain way, many of which comes with a lot of negative implications, right? Like we are asking them sometimes to give up their community. We are actually sometimes by having someone check into detox or a shelter, we're also asking them to give up their physical property, the few things that they do own, right? So how is it that, you know, when I talk about harm reduction, I'm talking more largely around the mindset that we at the end of the day should make policy decisions that are going to save people's lives, right? At the end of the day, that person that I pass on the way to work, I don't want them to die, right? And nobody really should, regardless of whether you think that person has made right or wrong decisions in their lives or you know, we're operating from our own biases and our own stigmas. We don't want that person to die, right? So how do we make policy decisions at a larger level that is going to center harm reduction and center keeping that person alive, essentially? And and you hit on something that I want to underline and like highlight and, and circle around like how violence 
manifests in in community and how it is not just interpersonal like i see someone being beaten or you know stabbed or shot as violence right violence is that oh i just don't want to see this person here and as long as they're gone i don't care what happens to them exactly mentality right and i think there are a lot of people who consider themselves quote unquote good people who when faced with that, it's like, do you or do you not actually care if that person survives or not, right? Exactly. And like, how do we face that as a community and say that we have a set of expectations that we lead with that is like every single individual is worthy of dignity, respect, deserve deserves like a home or a shelter over their head, access to food, access to things like education. And there is a just general disagreement about what that looks like and at what levels of quality people are deserving of based on their background or experiences. Correct. And I feel like I, you know, in having those difficult conversations, whether it be with a loved one or with yourself through reflection, you know, it's important to remember that essentially these are other human beings and not in my backyard ism nimbyism you know sometimes that is the deadly effect right this idea of you know displacing people um it's essentially it is deadly you know we live in massachusetts we live in new england there are encampments people do freeze to death people do overdose this is an opioid crisis and to you know reduce our language around something to just, oh, I want that homeless person out of this park or I want these needles cleaned up and that's why I don't want X, Y, and Z. You know, I think it's important to keep in mind that those are human beings and we are active participants in either protecting them and protecting our larger community because if you protect the most vulnerable, we can protect everybody or the opposite, which is this insidious, you know, not in my backyard mentality that I do think stems from, you know, capitalism and the history of our country around that is, you know, the conversation we had about property ownership. Property owners are not the only ones that we should keep safe, right? We should keep everybody safe. And so making sure that we do what is right by the most vulnerable people in our community. Well, listeners, you can't see this, but I'm like aggressively nodding <laughs> as in agreement with everything Domenica is saying. And so in our last few minutes here, when as we're approaching, you know, and, and this is, is both valuable for, for myself as well, thinking about what are some of the questions that we want to explore with our guests? You know, we're going to be talking with folks like Nikki Bell at Lyft and how they look at um, conversations around housing for solutions. We're going to be talking with Maddie Castile at the city around what um, ways in which the city is, is leveraging their power to help support, you know, communities come forward and, and a, a suite of other incredible folks um, doing equity-based work in our communities. Um, so what are some of the questions that we should be Absolutely. exploring and, and asking? Well, you have a stacked lineup and I have to say that the expertise, even in the people you have just mentioned is immense. And, you know, I think what we should some of the questions that I think a lot of this conversation should be rooted in is absolutely in solutions, right? What are we seeing in other places? What has worked? What doesn't work? And what are the obstacles to getting these um, solutions implemented, right? Are the obstacles what we think they are? 
Is it money? Is it willpower? Is it political power? Is it community organizing? Because I think then for the listeners, you know, I think the opportunity is to reflect, reflect and see where do you intersect with this conversation? Because at the end of the day, this topic touches everyone. Like I said, if you have an opinion about it, this affects you, right? And if this affects you, then you have a role to play, whether it be in advocacy, whether it be in, an, in you know just a conversation with your family member when you hear somebody say something inappropriate about someone on the street or whatever that may be, whether it be simple as donating some people with lived ex- to, to people with lived experience doing this work, right? Um, so I think a lot of my questioning is pr- in particular about what role do we have to play in this effort? Because we really all do have to come together as a community in order to implement some of these systemic changes that need to take place. And it's not going to happen overnight. And we need to have patience when people implement some of these um, solutions. And I think that, yeah, we just need to just communicate with one another and support one another to have those conversations and really, truly reflect on the role that you play in this larger system. Those are fantastic questions. One of the ones that jumped out at me right away was like, are the obstacles what we think they are? Mm -hmm. And I think, especially when it comes to funding and and money, and we're going to be talking to city councilor at Tallahassee as well this season, um, who is like a housing guru in like 18 different ways. (laughs) And something that Atel has said to me previously on the show is like, a budget is a moral document. And I have, Mm -hmm. for listeners who are regular to public hearing, I say this all the time, a budget is a moral document. Money exists. And Mm -hmm. we also just did a, our most recent season was about ARPA and Mm -hmm. the American Rescue Plan Act funding and how many millions of dollars are coming into Worcester to address issues that are exactly this, mm-hmm, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Housing is one of the largest budget items that the city has placed for the utilizing ARPA funds. Um, and it is supposed to be mostly impacting and supporting those most disproportionately affected by the COVID-19 pandemic, which are low-income communities and communities of color. And we have a responsibility as listeners, as, as residents, as people in the city to hold the city, the capital C city accountable mm-hmm. to utilizing those funds in the mm-hmm. way that is going to have the greatest impact for the folks who are most vulnerable in our current systems and, and structures. Um, so Domenica, thank you so much for coming on. This time always flies. We'll have to have you back on the show. This was great. Thank you so much, Josh. And I'm so happy that you're doing this topic because it is such an important conversation to have and your lineup, like I said, stacked. So there's a ton of expertise around this. And I just hope that people get an opportunity to listen and feel invested because we all have a role to play around this. We've been talking to Domenica Perone to kick off our series on housing. Domenica, thank you again for joining us. And thank you listeners for listening to Public Hearing, our podcast and radio show that airs Wednesdays at 6 p.m. on WICN 90.5 FM, Worcester's only NPR affiliate station, and can be heard wherever you listen to podcasts. Public Hearing is our show about addressing community challenges in ways that center equity, justice, and joy for every person in Worcester. Massachusetts. I'm your host, Joshua Croak, founder of Action by Design, where we help organizations, coalitions, and cities imagine and materialize equitable, just, and joyful communities through art and design. Get even more connected to the show at publichearing.co. 
Our audio producer is Juliana Durazio, who also made our incredible show music. Also, thanks to Kelly Kajurek and Molly Gammon, who also support the production of this show. The work continues, Worcester. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>